Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you know? I managed to stay alive for six and a half years. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Thanks very much for taking the time to listen to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, Mike Devitt here with Ken and Murph. Hi, guys. Hello there. Hey, how are you? Uh, not bad. It's the start of Champions League week. Four round of 16 games, the most interesting of which looks to be in Paris on Tuesday night. PSG against Chelsea. Not exactly the ideal build-up for the home side for this one. Saturday's draw at home to Caen featured the concession of two late goals and the loss of four players to injury. Only nine players on the field or nine PSG players, that is, at the end, because these substitutes, uh, so many substitutes had to be made. Who did you say Paris were playing again on? <laughs> <laughs> I like your... your well, what uh, would you go for? It's, it's, it's not can, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's C-A-E-N. It's a yeah. different, different Well, I, I like your approach, which is to just basically try not to make any noise at all. <laughs> there's, there's a C and an N, there, and don't ask me to do Saturday, that. I most got, of the words yeah, yeah. I should have gone for yeah. Saturday's draw at home to... Kane. <laughs> no, just said nothing. Featured the concession of two that goes. Yeah. Uh, testing times. Choppy waters for PSG. Yeah, there really is. It's yeah. a good ship. We'll talk about them. Uh, Paul Doyle's been writing about the, this for The Guardian, so we'll chat to him. And we're going to talk to Sam Wallace of The Independent about the return of Tim Sherwood again. Tim Sherwood is back. A uh, character you quite enjoy, I think, in the Premier having Doesn't in the Premier everybody? League. What is straight talking? I think everybody... At least enjoys Tim Sherwood. Some of them for different for different reasons, admittedly. Uh, okay, and I and I suppose Daniel Levy didn't, and some of the Tottenham fans who were complaining vociferously about him towards the end of his time at Tottenham, they didn't seem to be enjoying him either. You know what their problem was, Ken? Too much truth. Tim Sherwood talks the truth. Well, I think unvarnished, perhaps. Definitely, my favorite Tim Sherwood quote was: "There's too many actors in this game." And I hate actors. He said. He said. He said. He didn't like her. Which, which is a. I know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, but at the same time, it is a sort of um, the the kind of job that football management is almost requires you to be an actor, doesn't it? I mean, it, you, you're playing a part. 
you have to sort of uh, you have to be a lion tamer in part it's in, in, in the dressing room uh, you have to appear bigger than you really are Jose Mourinho style that's what that's what Jose Mourinho does anyway and he's obviously one of the more successful exponents it's not the only way to do it we've got David Luiz criticising jo- well not criticising Jose Mourinho so much as saying saying he doesn't want to know what's in your heart he does not speak to you about your life uh, David Luiz would rather a manager who spoke to him occasionally about his life and what's in his heart Jose Mourinho doesn't do that maybe Tim Sherwood is that type of manager I'm not sure he's done a, he's done his uh, press conference today uh, Aston Villa. Did he bring the the truth? Did he? Well, look. Was it too real? He's. Oh, hang on a second. Hang on. A second. See, we're going to be speaking to Sam Wallace now about the easy parodying, the, the lampooning of the lazy, Tim Sherwood. The lazy yeah. lampooning of Tim Sherwood. I'm setting up the show expertly <laughs> on God. Like, come on. Have do you? You're do, playing your do you role. Do you know nothing? You're nothing of show business. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of idiot. Uh, <laughs> that's that's caused so many problems for Tim Sherwood in yeah. the past. Let's get into Kenny's report me. on sport. Essentially, what Tim Sherwood has said is that he has nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Um, he's going to get Villa back on the front foot, throwing a few punches. Let's have a go fighting and start throwing a few punches ourselves. Uh, when I came here as a player, it's a difficult place to come and get results. I want to turn this place back into a fortress again, especially between now and the end of the season. Um, so Tim Sherwood... Uh, one of his one of his more more favorite or more favorite more famous lines seemed it didn't seem like anything special at the time but it sort of became a celebrated line was fifty nine percent win ratio no one's ever done that previously now if he did get a fifty nine percent win ratio at Aston Villa that would make him by far the most successful manager in the history of Aston Villa really oh by far I think the uh, most successful manager in terms of win ratio. Which isn't, which isn't something people have always been obsessed with, to be fair, is George Ramsey, manager of Villa for 42 years, from 1884 to 1926, uh, winner of six league titles and six FA Cups, uh, with a 49% win ratio. Martin O'Neill, nowhere near that? 42. Big Ron? 45. Well, I'm guessing well, but you seem to have the facts here, Ken. I just looked it up. I'm just going to keep on guessing. I looked it up a few minutes ago. John Gregory? Uh, 40, 43, something like that. Um, John Gregory, surprisingly high, actually. Um, uh, Big I Dave, think, Dave O'Leary probably had a. Uh, no, he didn't. No, he, he, 30, 30, 30 yeah. something, I think. He was in the 30 something bracket. Look, I, I can't remember. I can't remember what, what Dave O'Leary's figures, figure was. But difficult place to go and get results if you are the manager of Aston Villa. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's been the it's, way. It's not the sort of place you want to go and try and get a result. As, as, as the, Unfortunately, they do have to do it in exactly half of their Premier League games, but that's just yeah. what you have to overcome. So, I mean, this is, especially after everything that, that Paul Lambert had said, I mean, obviously, when, when a manager is, is sacked, um, what he says afterwards is, is going to be, to some extent, self-serving, and why shouldn't it be? He's got he's to stick up for himself. And he was pointing out the fact that he was dealing with a situation where, essentially, there was just cutbacks in every department, cutbacks across the board. He's having to make things work with, um, you know, ever-diminishing resources. Um, presumably, that's the job that Sherwood is walking into. Uh, now they had been they had been asking him, uh, you know, what do you think? Essentially, uh, there's a couple of things that, that Sherwood has said. He's he's kind of uh, been bigging up Christian Benteke. Benteke, who obviously had a brilliant first season in Villa, then fell off a cliff, then had a bad injury, um, and hasn't really been anything like the same player. He's, he did did his Achilles tendon, a bit of a disaster. 
Um, now he's saying, you know, hopefully we can tap into that, bring him back. But, you know, people are saying, well, you know, you brought on players like Harry Kane and um, Ben Taleb at Tottenham. You know, you put your faith in youth there. Does that mean we're going to see more of that at Villa? Well, I imagine it does, to be honest. I mean, Sherwood has kind of said um, it's not a case of... I'm, I'm not just the guy who just throws in young players willy-nilly. Mm. Uh, I'm going to pick the best team. That's what I do. You know, it's not a case of I'm just going to prefer younger players. But given that uh, a, a, a policy of favouring young players would also seem to chime quite closely with the agenda of the owners at Aston Villa, uh, who don't really want to be spending that much money anymore, uh, you would imagine they probably are. A few of these guys are going to be getting chances. Jack Grealish and, and so on and so forth. Well, the issue, uh, Jack Grealish aside, I guess, the, well, not necessarily aside, he's, he's still improving as well. It's how good these young players are. Mm. It's all very well and good. Saying, I mean, Benton and Harry Kane turned out were players. very good. Yeah. <laughs> they were really, actually very good let's players. throw in the young lads. It's um, okay if they're brilliant. There's also some old players there. Shea Given, for instance, uh, who played, obviously, in the in the cup match, cup win over Leicester, and made two great saves. One and a half great saves, I'll say. One of them was a, a terrific uh, dive to his left to, to uh, palm away, screamer of a shot. Uh, the other one, okay, Maybe he set it up a little bit by fumbling the ball in the first place, but then was able to uh, scramble the ball away from the feet of an onrushing striker quite bravely, showing that yeah, he's still got the old instincts. So. And uh, he is a former teammate of Tim Sherwood, which is really? just amazing. Yes, him and Tim Sherwood were together at Blackburn. Ah. Uh, when Shea Given, she, remember he was at Blackburn before uh, Newcastle. Or was it Blackburn, then Celtic, then Newcastle, or Celtic, then Blackburn? I can't quite remember. But anyway, they were at Blackburn together in the mid-90s. I've known him since our Blackburn days. He's a very positive character. This is because Sherwood had come in. Sherwood is obviously one of the more um, watchable managers in terms of his, he, you know, whereas Louis van Gaal is maybe one of the less watchable managers at the moment in the Premier League because he, he sort of just sits there craning his head a little bit and peering out of the field uh, and ha- with that folder on his lap. Tim Sherwood is is like a, a one man show of of emotion. You know what I mean? I've used to, I don't know if you saw any oh, of the yeah. footage of of the game because I mean they were showing a lot of Sherwood, and he was, uh, you know, the, he wears his heart in his sleeve. Let's say, uh, cheering the goals and so on. But he he was so he didn't like Villa's first half performance, so he went down to the dressing room and he told them to be more positive in the second half. And well, they went and. They were more positive. They did the business. They won two uh, by two goals to one. The goal that they let in was just in the last minute or so, causing an anxious, anxious uh, few seconds for Tim Sherwood. But eventually, they got the win. And uh, I wonder if maybe Shea Given is going to be able to get back in the team now, because it's quite clear that what's happened to Shea Given at Aston Villa has been the club decided, Shea, uh, we don't want you on the payroll anymore. Uh, maybe you could find yourself a new club. You're not going to play. We're not going to play. And it seemed as though the decision to do that was divorced from any consideration of form. It was a financial decision. Um, but they've been doing that a long time now, and Shakeman's still there. <laughs> they're still they're still paying him. Uh, if you are paying, if they're spending the money, maybe they might as well use the player. I suppose it depends on whether or not he can impress his old teammate Tim Sherwood more than Brad Guzan does in training. But uh, at least I has suppose, he not been contributing on the coaching side of things? Given. Well, he was. I mean, there was Villa had had a bit of a disturbance in their coaching staff, didn't they? A couple of months back, 
um, there was a strange little story where they let go of the assistant manager and a couple of players were moved up and then a couple of players were moved back down because they made an appointment, I think. I'm sure there's... Um, as far as I know, he's got no official coaching role there at the moment. And now that Tim Sherwood's come in, I don't know. Maybe he'll want it's to one way of getting. It's one way of getting a certain amount of value out of a player who you f- might feel his form or his ability at this stage of his career doesn't justify the wage that you agreed to pay him. And there's nothing that Jay Gibbon could do about this. He his, hmm. he negotiated, or his agent negotiated a deal. That's what that's what's coming to. Well, that's his, you know, it's his salary, you know. I mean, they could either pay him his salary or, uh, or get sued, I suppose, for the salary and they've chosen to pay. So uh, that's, that's uh, Aston Villa in the quarterfinals of the Cup. The draw for that is tonight. Uh, Bradford City will be in that draw. Um... They again beat a Premier League team, this time Sunderland. Uh, John O'Shea scoring the crucial own goal uh, in the first few minutes of the game. And Bradford then uh, demanding to demanding more respect from the BBC, who didn't show them once again. Uh, well, they'll show them next time. They'll show them in the quarterfinals, it turns out. Uh, Gus Poyet, though... Um, if they're drawing against Man United. <laughs> if they're drawing against Man United, then they can rest assured. Well, Tony Kelly had tweeted us and to say you guys are going to give my beloved Bradford the respect they deserve on Monday's podcast well it's not a question of us giving them the respect they're taking the respect it's something that you take not something that you're given is that, is that how it goes well, they, it they certainly demand they certainly demand respect and they, they demanded it before but now oh, they've so taken it I don't want to get lumped in I was showing them a lot of respect and a lot of love after their defeat of Chelsea oh yeah I mean I, I, I don't want there to be a bit of a, a break in the ranks here yeah. But at least one person here was showing Bradford respect. One other might have been a little less... You were second forthcoming. only to Jose Mourinho, I think, in the course of approval for Bradford. Yeah, but then I did remember we had a big debate last time, uh, after the last FA Cup round, about how relevant or exciting the tournament is. Yeah. This weekend... There's not been harping around about it every time it's an FA Cup weekend, but I must say I... My <laughs> the bounce that uh, that it was given last time out didn't really carry over uh, to my own to my own uh, viewing habits this weekend. Was it Dion Fanning we were talking to the Monday after all those John Killings, and he did say, "Listen, you know the John Killing acts are, are they are great and everything, but come semi final time, you will actually want to see some you know good teams left in it." Uh, well, to, yeah, as long as they're playing against each other, um, I think would be the would be the thing there. I mean. They, uh, it is hard to believe that it's not long. It's probably 25 years since this was considered at least as big as the Division One Championship, you know. Uh, and really, it's I suppose it's Sky you have to thank for the way in which the title, the the league title, has so completely obliterated the FA Cup. Well, and the Champions and, and the growth of the Champions League because it's meant that there's not just a league title to play for. There's fourth place, which to some clubs is their league title essentially. But you were about to talk about the, the, the money that the money that clubs get now under this new TV deal for one Premier League match will be more than they get for winning the FA Cup. That's why the Premier League <laughs> is more important. One one match in the league equals bigger than winning the cup. So. That's why. That's why they're. But anyway, Gus Poyet, uh, obviously the, the defeated manager of Sunderland, and ha- has had a few issues. Uh, and the Sunderland fans were uh, chanting, "Oh, it's always our fault," because Poyet's been suggesting, "Oh, the fans aren't giving them enough support," and so on and so forth. Um, uh, the unrealistic demands and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, now he's saying, uh, "You know, the fans are great. <laughs> if the if the fans were in here rather than you." He says to the journalists, there wouldn't be a problem. If we close Sunderland, put a China wall around the city with just us and the fans inside, it would be fantastic. I, I'm i doing my job and I know it's best for my team. So, 
I don't know. Uh, there was a sort of a wildness about Gus Poyet in his in his post match uh, talk. I, he knows that losing to Bradford isn't good. <laughs> um, I mean, getting into the quarterfinals of the cup would have suddenly put quite a positive spin on the season for Sunderland, but losing to a Division Three team, no, not not really so much. Um, Arsenal also managing to get through Olivier Giroud, showing that they're really, when it comes to being at the near post, six yards out, with the ball flashing in towards you below knee height. I don't think there's anyone better in the game. Is, is there? He's very neat at putting those kind of chances away mm. for a big lad. Yeah, I'm just trying to think, is there anyone better in the game? That, it wasn't a question I expected to be asking. No. Let me think about it. You, you just keep, keep going there and I'll think if there's anyone the la- better in the game at flashing the, 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 those six, six my, chances. Look, near post, you watch Olivier. The ball gets to the byline. Watch Olivier Giroud come alive in that penalty area. I don't know. It's the, the difference in his demeanor in that situation from every other moment in the game is so marked that I think he's got a serious problem. I think he really <laughs> needs to wake up the other 95% of the time when the ball is nowhere near the byline and there isn't a remote chance of it going to near post and remember that he can still make a contribution. It doesn't all have to be about hammering the ball past the goalkeeper at the near post, but it is something that he is particularly good at. Let's give him his due for that. Now, Manchester United are playing against Preston tonight uh, and... It's interesting to see the number of critical articles that have started to come up about Man United, uh, about Louis van Gaal. He's now being lectured by, uh, for instance, I, I see in the Independent, Danny Higginbotham. Right. Um, Ex of Manchester United, of course. He's, uh, Danny Higginbotham is essentially pointing out, look, it's a simple, it's a simple, uh, it's not rocket science. Why Manchester United, uh, why Manchester United's... Uh, Football is not working. Uh, he says, uh, what's happening is that there's no pace up front, uh, which means that the defenders can push up. They don't, they're not worried about pace in behind. You've got Falcao, you've got Roman van Persie. No one's going to threaten the space in behind the defence. So they push up. That means the midfield can push up. When Manchester United players get the ball, there's always a man immediately on them. The space is constricted and there's no, there's no uh, sort of an out ball. Um... So no height up front, no pace up front equals uh, an all-round difficult situation. And he, I mean, he says, uh, he says, uh, these are the equations which explain United's problems. So from that point of view, it couldn't, it really couldn't be any simpler. Well, Paul Scholes is writing about it in his, in his independent Very volume. critical, Paul Yeah, Scholes. very critical. The point, the... Uh, overall point he was making was that Manchester United aren't being true to the United way and this has been said by quite a lot of people now he's in a better position to talk about what that Manchester United way actually meant under Alex Ferguson and the, his point within the, the overall argument was when he, if he wasn't playing four passes, he, he was not just encouraged, he had to play adventurous passes regularly under Alex Ferguson, if he stopped it, even though the margin for error was quite high on those kind of passes, because if he stopped doing that and just took the safe option, he was dropped and he said the only way I was getting back in the team was to start doing it again, doing what Ferguson wanted me to do. And that obviously has a certain risk attached to it. It was quite interesting and it, it was probably quite something we would have expected to hear. But the, 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 oh, this overall idea that there's a certain way that Manchester United play, and there's a, traditionally, I guess, they have had a lot of attacking teams in their history. But you've got to appoint a manager and let him do, uh, if you trust him, then let him put his own imprint on it I don't, I'm don't. i not sure about the idea of being a slave to a certain philosophy especially when it's such a vague philosophy mm. we have to be we have to play attacking football and I, I'm not necessarily defending Van Halen because I don't think he's gonna, done a great job so far I think the clamour over his appointment was 
reactionary after what had happened with David Moyes. But I do think it's a little unfair to lumber him with this idea that you have to play all out attack at all times. Yeah, look, what I would say is that uh, Van Hal has never has been a manager who's always played attacking football at all of his previous teams. There's never been a, a problem with risk-taking or lack of excitement um, when Louis Van Gaal was manager of other teams. I think the problem that he has at the moment is the players that he has aren't really capable of doing anything other than what they're doing. Um, I mean, he's he's got a situation... Although, you know, I mean... You know, people are now beginning to... Because there's players being left out, Van Hal is talking about, say, for instance, we need a creative midfielder. And people say, well, what the, what's Juan Mata supposed to be? You know, what is he? Um, well, this is, at the start of the season, the problem was supposed to be how you'd fit in all the attacking talent. Now it seems to be that there's not enough attacking talent there. Di Maria, Mata, all these sorts of players. The, the issue should have been, well, there's, it's too top-heavy, it's too attack-heavy, and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, and the question, yeah, it's, it's like, why is Rooney not? Why is Rooney playing in midfield? Rooney is, uh, you know, your best striker. Why isn't he playing midfield? Your best striker hasn't scored for nine games, but of course he's not playing in front, uh, so it's a bit different. Hasn't had a shot on target this year, so, uh, but of course he's not playing in front. Um, Van Hal says, I'm looking for balance. So I need balance in midfield. When I play with Yanazai and Di Maria in the midfield positions, you need a certain balance for that kind of creative player. Balance is another. After last week's uh, paper waving episode, which was superficially reminiscent of Rafael Benitez. He's now using another Rafael Benitez buzzword, which is balance, uh, which is not flair, wit, uh, verve, any of the other buccaneering, <laughs> any of these other Manchester United uh, words. Uh, when you have these creative players, uh, and also Falcao and Van Persie are creative players, and you have four creative players, you have to look for balance in your team. Apparently Rooney provides balance, I suppose. And if you can env- envisage a scales... Uh, on the one side, you've got four creative footballers, and the other side, you've got Rooney, <laughs> and they balance each other out. Um, this is this. I imagine what, what he's trying to say. He is happy. That, and people are saying, "Well, is, is Wayne happy? Is Wayne happy to be shoveling dirt in midfield while these creative players, who you've put on a pedestal above him just by your choice of words, uh, labour up front to, and, and fail to produce any goals?" He says he is happy. Otherwise, he'd come to me and say, "I'm not happy." But he never does. <laughs> this is, it's a bit like somebody says, well, whenever, when I meet people on the street, they're always so nice to me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a Roy Keane argument. Uh, we had the big bus up. I asked the players, do you, do you want to you got video? a problem with that? Have you got a yeah. problem with that? <laughs> Who here has a problem with that? Fletcher so said there was no problem. Yeah. So Chazy said there was yeah. no problem. So you walk out of the room presuming that no one has any problem with he, what you've just said. But he does say, he says, he's always friendly to me. This is on Harold talking about Rini. He's always friendly to me and he wants to perform what I want. That's what I see. But... When the whole world is writing that he has to be in the striker's position, he shall be thinking, hey, as he is human. So possibly Rooney's head being turned by all these articles saying that he uh, should play up front. I mean, he has numerous times himself said that it's his favourite position, but uh, they were in, mm. it was in different circumstances. David Luiz is going to be coming up against his former club this week? Yeah, David Luiz was, I guess, with Chelsea playing PSG um, and a lot of English journalists going to Paris, um, PSG figured that David Luiz would be one of the more interesting PSG players they could put up for this. And, uh, yeah, a couple of things from that interview that he did with the uh, journalists over there. Uh, first, that he's got like a nine-inch kind of hole in his leg uh, from playing the 2012 Champions League final with a busted hamstring. Right, which I thought, this is pretty weird. I didn't think that was the kind of thing you could play a busted hamstring. Play, play with a busted hamstring. I mean, I remember Diego Costa tried to do that in 2014, and he had to go off after seven minutes. How did David Luiz manage to get through 120 minutes and score a penalty? Um, 
David Louise explains that he told the doctor, I said to him, you know how I worked hard in my life to be here? You know when I left my family, I was 14 years old? You know tomorrow there are 200 million Brazilians in the world and only one of them can be in the pitch? You know what it is for my life to be here? Then it's not for you to say something to say I cannot play tomorrow. I will do the test, but even if I fail, you go to Di Matteo and say to him that I play. Uh, he said, no. I said, you go there and you say to him, if not, I kill you. And tomorrow we will be champions of Europe. No problem, trust me. <laughs> so he, he's, he loves this, uh, uh, going around telling people, no problem. It's, it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. I assume he was doing it on the pitch at 2-1 and the 2-0 and you know, Bel Horizon. Okay, okay, come on. We don't need they to... did ask him about that, obviously. But he prefers to talk about the uh, 2012 Champions League final, Chelsea against Bayern. Um, Abramovich said, how's the leg? I said, no problem. Tomorrow I play with the head and the heart, so no problem. He said, my God, I'm nervous. I said, keep calm. Uh, so then he spends the game talking to the um, Bayern players with this sort of um, uh, the, the sort of glazed eyes of the uh, kind of religious zealot, uh, telling them that they have no chance. Uh, Schweinsteiger, Müller, Robin, you have no chance. Um, uh, huh, you look, your team is much better than ours, but we are going to win. I told Gomez. He says uh, Schweinsteiger comes to. Uh, comes to mark me. I said, hey, it's no problem. I am not the one who will score. Didier scored. And Schweine looked at me like, what the? <laughs> so apparently this is going on through with him and the Bayern players. You can see that image of Mario Gomez when he scores his penalty and he walks past me and he says, okay, I want to see you now. I scored. After the game, I see him and he says, oh my God, don't talk to me. You must have magic or something. And I said, no, it's just trust. It was special, special. So there you go. He's a special... He's a cross between John Terry and David Brent, by the sounds of things. Um, David Louise here. <laughs> Terry's lion-heartedness and can-do attitude and just everything about David Brent <laughs> in his interactions with others and his willingness to talk in depth about those interactions. That's the end of Ken Erdy's Report on Sport. Tim Sherwood is back in English football at Aston Villa as as from this weekend. Um, we're joined to talk a little bit about this by Sam Wallace of the Independent in the UK. Sam, I think it's he probably followed in some ways a typical pattern for a manager in the Premier League in that early on all was sweetness and light. Certainly, uh, there was a bit of positivity around the place, but pretty soon he became I don't know. Would you agree? He became somewhat of a lampoon figure by the end at Spurs. Um, yeah, I guess it, it sort of ran away from him in certain areas. It's quite hard now, isn't it, when you get a reputation in the way that sort of social media um, it becomes a almost a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, really. And, and undoubtedly, you know, he made a few um, mistakes. Um, some of the things that he uh, he did on the bench were probably, I think, on reflection, he wouldn't do again. 
But um, I mean, looking back at that time, he was sort of he was in a strange situation because he he knew a lot sooner than anyone else that that he wasn't going to be um, continuing beyond the end of the season. And I think he got to the situation where he, he got to the to the level where he was just being asked in every press conference, well, you know, Frank Boer's going to get your job, it says this week, or or whoever it happened to be that week. And I think maybe that just um, that that just created a pressure that that he was not expecting, and uh, he reacted in a certain way. But I would say that his basic principles about how he wants to run a club and how he sees development. Um, are pretty sound, really, and I don't think reading from reading what he said today at Villa, um, that's definitely that that's not going to change, you know. And um, if if he manages um, if he manages to keep them up, then I, I expect that he will try and run that club in a way that that young players are given a chance. Do you think that Spurs led him up the garden path a bit, Sam? Because I mean, I think when he took over, it was it was it December, and he was given a contract until the summer of the of the next season. So did he? Uh, seriously think at that point that he did have a chance of being a long-term contract? Because it seemed from the outside as though Daniel Levy had the idea all along that he was only going to be a stopgap. Yeah, I think talking to him, I mean, he always, I mean, he, I mean, he, you know, full, you know, he realised that from the start that, that, um, that the natural course for the club to take was to him to go through to uh, the summer of 2014 and then for them to appoint someone else. And, and he said to Levy, look, if that's what you want, then, you know, I'd still be interested, but let's just be upfront about this. And and if I am going to stay beyond that, then I need an eighteen-month contract, really, just to give me that sort of clout with the players. Um, because, as we all know, when when players know that you're going at the end of the season, it does affect the relationship. But in those early days, it was always very much no, no, no. You know, we we see you as the long term. Um, so therefore, you know, have this eighteen-month contract. And I think that was the thing that threw him really that that. Once he then a few weeks in started to talk about transfer targets for the following summer, it, it quickly became very very clear that there was um, there was just no interest in moving on that and on his recommendations. And that's when that that's when you, that um, he came out with the line: "The silence is deafening." He wasn't talking about being sort of backed um, explicitly by the board. He was more talking about the implicit. Um, Kind of well, the implications rather of of them just not acting on anything on any plans he had beyond that summer. He did start pretty well. I remember. I mean, he, he won at Old Trafford quite early on in, in his time at Tottenham. Everyone was winning at Old Trafford last season. <laughs> it's true. I mean, he, he did. I think he said they were there for the taking. After yeah. Well, yeah, he felt they'd play, that, that Spurs had played quite poorly that night. I remember he was, he was mildly critical of his team. He said that there were more goals. In, in the side that that could, night, if they'd managed it, could yeah. could have done better on that occasion. But you know, I mean, having started well, um, you sort of watched this process happen up close, where he, you know, he became in some quarters a sort of figure of fun. I mean, how did that actually happen? I mean, because you know, sometimes I suppose the, the press, particularly, um, wants managers who are more plain spoken or, or straight talking, and then when one does come along, who is like that, he ends up being mocked for it. Yeah, I think it. I think it was. It's quite a modern phenomenon, actually. I, I, I mean, the occasions that I went um, over to Enfield to the training ground, I certainly didn't get that impression from the the reporters that covered Spurs on a regular basis. You know, they were getting some pretty straight answers to their questions, and although they all suspected that he wouldn't be around after the summer, I, th- I think it was. Um, it really kind of gathered the pace on Twitter, really, from what I could see. And that there's, you know, there's a few sort of loud voices who, um, who you know, didn't like him and and. Spurs fans 
they they can be notoriously difficult to please, and 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 they certainly I, I think they they certainly drove that kind of um, that phenomenon. Really, I don't. I mean, he, he's someone who doesn't doesn't really give. He probably guesses doesn't give a lot of thought to PR, and I think that when when he was in that position, he, he felt that to say anything other than exactly what he was thinking would almost be to kind of give in to what the club wanted him to do. So um, he wasn't trying to be deliberately awkward, but he certainly wasn't going to cede any ground to them because he could see what was going on behind the scenes. And yes, I, I would agree with the lampoon, definitely, you know, the kind of men that were being created and, and things like that certainly certainly um, suggested that. But I also think you have... You, you, you know, we we do live in that social media bubble, even as journalists. And I think that someone like Tim, I mean, that just doesn't. It never really struck me that it affected him in any way, and it never sort of swayed his thinking. Maybe it should do. I don't know. Maybe in the in the modern in in modern football, you you have to pay attention to that sort of thing. But it never once struck me that it bothered him, or 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 really that he'd even taken much notice of it. Well, that's uh, something I wanted to come on to, whether or not he, he will change in any way. He's taken the Assassin Villa job, he's done his first press conference, and he seems to be seems to have the same straightforward, somewhat bullish tone about what he's going to do at the club. Uh, would, would you see him altering what his approach in any way? No, I don't think so. And I think, I mean, although he's only 46, I mean, I think it's always a good clue in football to look at the influences that of... of, of you know the managers that the current day managers played under when they were players. I mean, he came through Watford's training scheme under Tom Wally, who was a very famous, very successful developer of youth. I mean, his most successful player was um, was John Barnes, but he who, who he found really rather than developed. But he certainly he you know he built a lot of that good Graham Taylor team, and uh, and he was a very very tough character. And then of course there's Kenny Dalglish, and Tim was Kenny's second signing at Blackburn. And and he was his captain, and he was often the person who bore the brunt of Kenny's displeasure in those in those two big seasons. You know when they when they finished runners up and then won the title. It was twenty years ago they won the title. So I, I, I think if you if you you know if you sat him down and started saying, well look, you know uh, there's this phenomenon called Twitter, and people are very very critical on it, and you might want to take care of it. He would he would really take it back down to to basics, which was. How, how a manager is perceived by his players and that, you know, be it in the dressing room or be it in the way that he presents himself in press conferences. And I think he really sees it, you know, as, as simply as that. When you talk about his uh, principles, I mean, would he, in terms of his his style of, of management, I mean, is, would he be one of these kind of uh, training ground coaches like Brendan Rodgers or Mauricio Pochettino or is he more of a Ferguson, Redknapp, uh, Martin O'Neill style delegator? Oh, definitely, definitely on the training ground. I mean, I think he he would accept that he would need help with that. You know, that he, he, his staff, you know, Chris Ramsey and Liz Ferdinand, have obviously have got other jobs now, and and the, and over the long term, the burden of of coaching every day and and trying to run the run the club and and take an interest in the in the junior teams is going to be hard. But no, he's definitely he will definitely be out there. Um, he. You know, he was no different. The funny thing was that with Villas Boas was exactly the same, and he would he was very much a kind of a, you know a tracksuit manager. But in the afternoons at Enfield, he would he would be up in his room with the rest of his team on the laptop and kind of analysing. Whereas Tim Tim's philosophy was always very much you know the the manager's office is just really for private meetings. The rest of the time, you've got to be visible around the training grounds. You've got to 
you've got to be talking to people across all the teams. And I think that's the kind of manager he is. You know, he's the sort of he wants to be. He's quite. A, he's a strong personality. And he wants to make that bring that personality to bear around the training ground during the week. I mean, one question, I suppose. I mean, he's arrived at Aston Villa now. Paul Lambert, who just left there, has talked in his sort of parting statement about the acute financial constraints that he had had to work under. Um, he's made it pretty obvious that was the kind of job it was. Um, it's not. It's not one of the easier jobs in football. In fact, if you look back at Villa over the last, I don't know, ten or fifteen years, it's been a bit of a managerial graveyard. It's very difficult for anybody to go in there and make any kind of sustained positive impact. It seems so. Um, I mean, are, are you in any way surprised that he's uh, he's looked on this as, as a good uh, as a good opportunity? Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, and you're right, and especially when it's compared to I think it was three sixth place finishes under Martin O'Neill. I mean, it's it's hard to see them better in that. Um, but I, I think I think football changes all the time, and if you look at what Southampton and Swansea have achieved, I think for Villa fans, even though they support a club that is in that elite that has won the European Cup at a certain stage in its history, then I think I think they would accept that model. I think they would accept the this you know let's call it the Southampton model, the very astute buys um, across Europe combined with um, a good good young players. And from the academy, I, I, I think that's, you know, I really do think that's the pinnacle of their ambitions. But that's not a bad ambition to have. That's that's a good one. And, um, you know, whereas I think maybe there was a feeling that maybe even 10, year, 10, 5 years ago that this was a club that should be able to challenge the established elite. I think given what they've been through lately, I think people might realistically revise that to say, well, if we could do what Southampton had done and if we could... If we could keep things stable in that way, then that would that would be a good outcome. All right, Sam Wallace, Chief Football Correspondent for the Independent. Thanks very much for chatting today. Uh, thanks, thanks, Cheers. Just on that PR element, and we talked a little bit about it at the start of the show. You made the point, Ken, that he that Sherwood had said there are too many actors in this game. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't like the the acting that's involved necessarily in managing. It's interesting in that Sam talks there about as long as he's giving the right message in press conferences as long as this is the way Tim Sherwood would see it as long as he's giving the right message in his press conferences as long as he's communicating properly with the players behind the scenes that's what matters but the more I think about it players are on Twitter now too Mm. players are going to see the extra stuff maybe press conferences aren't even particularly relevant to them they probably think what's this manager going to say whereas if, if his persona is slagged off enough on Twitter and elsewhere. I don't know, maybe players start to to buy into that as well. You'd assume that they'd be smart enough to go with what they see every day as opposed to this caricature that grows up around a guy. But like, you never know. It's like Louis Van Gaal says, if Wayne Rooney's reading every day, I should be up front, he starts to think, hey, because he's only human. So I guess it's the same. Um, well, it's kind of, it's what I I think, saying is, it's that's it's that's another thing even. You know, the, the idea that there's a caricature that can be very quickly drawn up of a manager and then no matter what that manager does, that's what it, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't I mean, even know if he should worry about it. Tim Sherr is probably right not to worry about that. No, if he's, he's, he's worried he's about right. what everyone's going to say about him then. He is right not to worry about it because but, but he, he saying, can't I'm, control I'm, it. But yeah, but I'm just saying in, in, as a, if you're a player judging your manager, if it's a commonly accepted fact, as it seems to be in football, that part of how you judge him is how he performs in front of the media, hmm. the message he puts across in press conferences, if that is the case, then the media isn't just press conferences anymore. In fact, mm. press conferences are maybe a, a less relevant part of how people, how managers are viewed as compared to what everyone else is saying about them. I think that um, the the thing that 
annoys players is when they start to spot inconsistencies between what a guy is saying in public and what they're hearing from him. That's the, that's the thing that really starts to annoy and kind of breaks down the trust that they have. So the problem that somebody like Tim Sherwood encounters is that he gives too much away. He says too much in public. Uh, and because if you're managing a group of you know 25 guys, obviously you can't keep... Well, you, In fact, you can't keep even more than half of them happy most of the time. Assuming that they all want to be in the team, you can't put... Most you can't put even half of them in the team, so you have to be trying to, you know, kind of shepherd people along, and you're telling everyone a slightly different version of the truth. You know what I mean? Everyone, there is one truth, sure, but there are also many smaller truths <laughs> which you tailor individually to your players. And um, but if you're kind of if you have this attitude, oh, I'm I'm a straight talking, you know, I always tell everyone the same thing, you know. A lot, of your, a lot of your players aren't going to like that. You have to be able to sort of lie a little bit to everybody. And, I mean, somebody like Ferguson is probably, is, the, is obviously the, the ultimate example of somebody who was able to do this. Um, his attitude towards the media was almost, it was like, I'm only going to say what I want to say. I'm not going to say anything that you want me to say. You know, just get out and just get out of my sight. It's difficult, I suppose, for for people to... He, he had developed that position over a long period of, of success, you know. But he, and it's winning as well. It's winning. Winning is a... Die. You win, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Tim Sherwood could sit there in his boxer shorts doing a press conference and everyone would be like, have we thought about the Sherwood model yeah. of, of this? You know, maybe more what managers the boxer shorts strip tell down us to their underwear. Tim Sherwood's management style. But almost any manager is going to win and lose. Hardly any managers are going to just be rampantly successful with a club. 59% win ratio would do it. That would probably never been seen before. Yeah, it didn't quite do it at Tottenham, though. <laughs> um, yeah, it, no, it's, it is true. And, and winning with the team that he has at Aston Villa is going to be difficult. I mean, more and more, you kind of have sympathy for managers. It's almost like, what can you do? You're powerless. You have, you know, you're just, you're almost. There's so many other forces, so many other complex forces at work here, that you are just the the. There's, there's only an illusion that you're in control. Oh, yeah, I get uneasy as soon as a manager starts to get talked up. R- R- Ronald Koeman has done an incredible job. <laughs> yeah. He'll be sacked within a year. <laughs> he probably will. Michael Lauderbet done an incredible job. Uh, you're just watching it thinking, oh, it's, you're, it's uncomfortable even looking at uh, any manager at that sort of level being talked up because it's almost certainly going to end in tears. Yeah. And they're well compensated for it and all those things. But uh, I, w- I would have a certain amount of sympathy for them. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, uh, well, only a certain amount. I mean, as you said, they are well compensated, and that does diminish the sympathy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's awful, really, isn't it? It shouldn't really, but it does, though. Chelsea against Paris Saint-Germain, or I should, should say PSG versus Chelsea in Paris, is the probably the most appetising game of the round of 16 fixtures this week in the Champions League. It's on tomorrow evening, and we're going to talk about it now with Paul Doyle, who's been writing about this for The Guardian. You were writing specifically, Paul, about the preparations from the, the point of view of PSG, uh, which haven't been ideal. What happened in their game at the weekend? Yeah, uh, really bad preparation for them. They, they, uh, well, Chelsea, of course, had the weekend off. Uh, PSG were at home to Caen in a league game, which uh, they were expected to win pretty, pretty comfortably. Caen are, are struggling towards the lower end of the table, and PSG always beat them. And uh, Zlatan gave PSG the lead after just two minutes. So everything seemed hunky-dory. Um, the, then they went 2-0 up, and then, um, and then some bad voodoo struck, and they, they lost four players to injury and conceded two goals in the last two minutes of the game, when, by which time they were down to nine men because they had used their substitutions and couldn't replace some of the injured guys. And so that meant they didn't go back to the top of, of the table, and they're, they're still 
uh, I think that's third, um, a couple of points behind Lyon, uh, when they should be running away with the league, given the, 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 the quality they have. Um, and, and they go into the Chelsea game with a severely depleted squad. Um, uh, most of the players who, who got injured at the weekend probably wouldn't have started against Chelsea, but they would, could certainly have had an impact off the bench. And one of them, Marquinhos, the uh, 20-year-old Brazilian defender, most likely would have started. And he kind of disrupts um, PSG's uh, defensive strategy because one of the... And in fact, they're still saying that the, the, their priority in this game is to make sure they don't concede a goal because in the last two years they've been eliminated from the Champions League on away goals because they conceded at home. So they wanted to make sure they didn't do that this time and they've been weakened defensively. Yeah, I was quite taken by one of the details in your piece about one of the injured players, Johan Kabai, who was a doubt before the game and Blanc was aware that this guy was carrying a bit of an injury but felt he had to risk him. He came off very early on in, in obvious pain. And the question is, how are PSG in a situation where they're having to take a punt on a, a possibly injured player when they've got all the money in the world? Yeah, um, it's a combination of uh, bad luck and you could say bad planning. Um, he, he explained that he had to play Kabai because their, their, their other central midfielders were injured. And PSG don't have uh, a great youth team that they can draw on. That was one of the complaints about their, uh, their, um, their strategy is that they don't put much into youth development anymore despite having a huge catchment base there in Paris. And when you compare them to Lyon, who are top of the league at the moment in France, with a squad almost entirely built from their own academy, it doesn't reflect well on them. Um, But PSG were, of course, like Manchester City, were hit um, with some constraints by financial fair play last summer. And they didn't invest heavily in the team, other than, of course, spending £50 million on David Luiz. So they they kind of put their eggs all in one basket, or one basket case, as you might say. but um, they, that might have been better spent uh, on, on maybe two or three uh, high-class high players to have a, a stronger squad. And at the same time, they, their owners, their Qatari owners, have insisted that they challenge uh, on all fronts. They have to go, they're still in four tournaments and, and they're expected to, to go as far as possible in all of them. So Blanc hasn't really rot- rotated the squad beyond the core of about 22 first-team players. Why don't they spend money on uh, their youth academy, Paul? I mean, it's, it's, aside from being the one thing that they can blow as much money as they like on and it doesn't affect uh, financial fair play, it, it would be great PR, you would imagine, for the owners. Yeah, I mean they they will eventually. They're they're still quite early into their um, their restructuring plan, and their priority at, at the start was to lure very glamorous names, uh, and and that's where what they put their priority on. Uh, uh, similar to what Monaco did before Monaco sort of backed out a little bit, and uh, and, that, and that's what they want. It's a, it's a vanity project, and um, at, at this stage of it, where they want to get. To Europe's top table as quickly as possible, that they think that's the route to go down. Yeah, I mean they're they're not at the top of the French table, uh, which is you know bewildering really when you when you look at the, the kind of um, yeah. French well, they, they, they did have. win it last season by uh, in in record fashion. You know they smashed goal scoring records, uh, unbeaten sequences. It's a, it was a really comfortable victory last season. Yeah, but is Laurent is Laurent Blanc the kind of um, superstar that uh, Paris Saint Germain wants to be? Associated with at this at this stage, is, does he fall no, into that category? Uh, 
No, he he, he wasn't their first choice. Uh, they were hoping to 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 get you know one of one of the the poster boys, you know, a Mourinho or a Guardiola or someone. So is uh, is Laurent Blanc though? Does he have that kind of cachet in France, where of course he was such a great player for the for the national team? Yeah, well, his his, his image was, was slightly tainted by his ill-fated reign with the national team. Um, because uh, he started his, his managerial career in brilliant fashion. He won the title with Bordeaux in, in, um, when they were heavily unfancied to do so. He got the national team, qualified them for, for the European Championships in pretty spectacular style uh, and was kind of a breath of fresh air after Raymond Dominic. And people were thinking, at last, uh, we have a proper manager and, and a guy who was always, his nickname has been Le Président. And he seemed like he was destined to lead the country to glory. But in, in those Euros, they were a disaster. They were just really glum, boring and negative. Uh, and that very much tainted his reign. It's why he wasn't first choice when he came up. And there was this kind of uh, a shrug of the shoulders when he was appointed. No one was particularly excited about it. And, um, and even last season, when, when they, they stomped to the league, nobody was particularly impressed. And and so tomorrow's game is a huge challenge for them. They started their Champions League campaign this season in very impressive fashion. They beat Barcelona at home 3-2. And they will be trying to, to reproduce that that performance tomorrow because they played in that game very differently to the way that they play in, in their domestic league. Um, but whether they can do that again or not remains to be seen. Uh, will all of France, do you think, be solidly behind Paris as they go toe-to-toe with Chelsea? Of course, with all these injuries and, and all the, the odds stacked against them, will, will their cause capture the hearts of the nation? <laughs> well, there's, there's certain parts of France that will never be behind Paris, no matter what they do. I, you know, Marseille, for example. Um, well, I, I think French football would like to sort of gain respectability on, on the European stage. And, um, and, and they... They need it um, as much for their, their TV rights. It's the one, um, the one positive side effect of uh, the Qatari investment is PSG, is that by bringing various global stars to France, they've helped keep the, um, the TV rights uh, at a, a reasonable level uh, and the other teams get to sort of bask in some reflected wealth as a result of that. So, um, so while nobody particularly admires PSG's uh, sugar daddies and, and the way they're just trying to spend their way to, to everything, um, the, 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 it does have some positive offshoots for them. I mean, they are up against the club, I suppose, that they aspire to be in a lot of ways. Chelsea kind of have undergone the, the transformation that uh, the Qataris are trying to uh, bring about at Paris Saint-Germain. And they've kind of reached the end point now, Chelsea. Um but I wonder if you think Paris Saint-Germain will ever be able to emulate that achievement and sort of reach the situation that Chelsea are in now. Because it strikes me that Chelsea, what Chelsea have done, that is to become a, a kind of gigantic, uh, almost self-sustaining, I say almost self-sustaining business on that level, couldn't, yeah. have, couldn't have actually happened outside the context of the Premier League. Yeah, where exactly. they're getting, I mean, is, is it possible for a French club to do that? Um, I don't think so, no, because... As you say, the Premier League has um, the, the huge advantage that their TV money dwarfs everyone else in Europe, and and PSG, if they wanted this, you know, build up a sort of player property empire in the way that Chelsea have, and, and then flog, flogging off players like Lukaku and, and all those guys that they sold for for vast sums, 
would ha- would have to sell probably to English clubs mainly because there's no one in France who could buy off them uh, for that uh, for that amount. Even even Monaco have have trimmed back. And then the, the other thing that Chelsea benefit from from being in the Premier League is they play at a level of intensity against other teams that that, that PSG don't have to on a regular basis. PSG have kind of just drifted through this season, and and a lot of the players visibly found it hard to to, to raise themselves. Four games. They just they don't attack at speed. They don't they don't run after the ball when they lose it with with, with much zest. Especially after winning the title so comfortably comfortably last season, they did against Barca as I said earlier in the season, and they will try to do that against Chelsea. But it's a question of can you sort of turn it on and turn it off uh, uh, intermittently like that? Whereas Chelsea would be used to playing at a higher pace and intensity on a regular basis. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Paul Doyle, the Guardian. Great stuff. Thanks, Mill. Bye. You don't sound too convinced about the long-term project at PSG, Dergan? Um, well, look, the the problem is that there just isn't... If financial fair play is going to limit your spending to uh, a percentage of what you actually make, or it's going to link your spending to your revenue, then PSG are going to have a, a problem uh, maintaining a situation where they can, they can have players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, playing for them and Thiago Silva and all of these other kind of you know world class players, when uh, they don't really have the underlying revenue to back that up. I mean, at the moment, what PSG are doing is, is sort of awarding themselves huge sponsorship contracts, or you know, Qatar tourism gives them two hundred million a season, which UEFA already looked at and said, look, <laughs> we can't take. So this ultimately, seriously. financial so fair play. Yes, yeah, so financial fair play is going to be incredibly positive for the. Super clubs in England mm, it's, with, it's, with the new TV deal, it's going to benefit them more than anyone else. Certainly, more than any of the smaller clubs. Absolutely, to, absolutely, because it, because it's like legitimate income. It's like legitimate revenue, which can't be sort of gainsaid. No one can say, "Well, look, you know, that's that doesn't count. That's a sweetheart deal." Because it's not. You know, it's it's just what you're getting on the open market. I mean, I saw something we didn't get a chance to mention earlier on was the Bayern Munich. Um, had a protest at their match. Not a protest, exactly, but their fans were still holding up uh, banners. This ain't no Premier League. No to the English model. And I couldn't quite work out what it is that they have a problem with, to be honest, because the TV deal is actually the best thing about the English model. I mean, in terms of it's the it's the fairest aspect of it. It's like the, the most positive aspect of It's the thing the Premier League does best is sell itself to TV companies. Um, they split the revenues fairly evenly, you know, compared to almost everywhere else. I mean, Bayern were saying uh, no, to, no to the English model. They then went and destroyed Hamburg 8-0. Is that, you know, that's not necessarily... What they have at the moment isn't, I don't think... I don't look at the Bundesliga and say, well, I, I, I wish... I wish uh, all of the leagues around Europe were a bit more like this. Bayern could argue that they've built up that dominance over the period of 40 or 50 years, as opposed to Manchester City or Chelsea, who have been bought that dominance. Mm. Well, they, I mean, I, I assume that must be what, what Bayern, the Bayern fans are kind of complaining about. The idea that the, it would be a bad thing for the entire league to get a big uh, deal like that with, a, with TV companies and everybody would get really rich out of it I don't know why. Yeah, it's not the TV money that's querying the deal. It's actually the it's the foreign ownership that that's the part of the English model that's yeah the, that's the, following up the the, the, the the Sheikh Mansour and Abramovich bit. That's the kind of you know. Whereas if it was just a question of the television money, then 
well, wouldn't it be great if everybody could could have that situation, I guess, for, from the point of view of football players and football agents. Next Monday, February 23rd, we're taking the podcast at the Sugar Club in Dublin. The closing date for applying for tickets is tomorrow, Tuesday. So go down to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. If you're interested in coming along, it should be a great night. That's also one place you can listen to our first show today on that uh, that webpage. We've given you irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. Dennis Hickey and Jerry Thornley were talking to us about Ireland France and looking ahead a little bit to Ireland England. That's it from the football podcast. Thank you, Ken. Uh, thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Karen. Thank you both. And thank you, Karen. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.